Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. And I'm here today with Denny Wilson, who's the founder and CEO of FI Community Housing Christian Recovery Support Services. That's a mouthful. Yes. In Akron, Ohio. Denny, welcome. Thank you, Greg. It's Thank really you. nice to be here with you today. Um, I'm honored that you're here today. Um, and I, you know, I really uh, just want to say thank you for the work that you're doing and, and uh, the message that you're trying to get out there. Well, thank you. Um, hey, Denny, you founded FI Community Housing in 1995, and today it's Ohio's largest peer-oriented, peer-operated recovery community. How did you happen to get into community housing in the first place? Well, um, recovery housing saved my life. Um, I was a, a product of the product, so to speak. You know, I, I found myself... Um, by the age of 25, highly addicted to several different drugs, including alcohol. And um, uh, after some failed treatment attempts, um, I uh, ended up in Orange County, California, went through a 21-day intensive treatment program. Can you share what drugs? Yes. Um, I was into heroin. I was into crack cocaine, which was my main drug of choice, and any type of alcohol that was available. Did you shoot? I did not. I snorted. I okay. was always had a fear of needles. Okay. Proceed. Mm-hmm. So I found myself uh, um, leaving this 21-day program um, with all of my bridges burnt. You know, I was living with my mom, who um, primarily, for the most part of my life, raised raised me single, um, myself and um, uh, three siblings. And um, I had burnt that bridge to the point to where I had no place to go um, upon being released. And I was afforded a 14-day stay in a what they called a sober house at that time out there. And that's when I met a man who um, basically took me under his wing um, for the first time in my life, told me that, you know, uh, he poured into me, you know, some, some hope, you know, and created a space that uh, was conducive to my efforts in recovery. So this was your sponsor, this gentleman this you was, met? This was my mentor. Your mentor? Um, yes. Okay. Explain um, the difference if you could, Denny. Sponsor is a term that is generally used in the 12-step programs, um, and their basic role is to walk you through um, the 12 steps of any 12-step affiliation, um, whether that be Alcoholics Anonymous, 
Cocaine Anonymous, Sex Anonymous, and all the other 12-step programs that have derived from that. But um, no, he was more like a mentor because he went above and beyond um, the steps, um, which I did work through at the time. He was a member of AA and taught me to become a member of AA. Um, but I didn't consider him a, a sponsor because he went so far outside of the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. So more like a coach, maybe. He was probably, if I could have put a term to it back then, the world's first recovery coach to me. Hmm. Okay. So 14 days, mm -hmm. that's all that you were in an inpatient program. Mm -hmm. That was, um, from my understanding now, was based upon, uh, well, um, the 21 day was what my insurance would cover. Um, and also my level of assessment um, said I needed something really intensive because I had been through five different modalities before, treatment modalities, and um, unsuccessfully because I was still using. And um, 14 days was, you know, to me, it was a heaven send. Okay. And um, I walked into the situation where we had a six um, bed house for clients and two staff members on site. And um, it was basically a bunch of um, crates with a piece of cardboard over top. And beside that crate was another crate um, for a nightstand. You hmm. know, um, so really bare bones living space. Bare bones. Um, he hadn't been up and running more than eight months, but managed to make a connection with the local hospital because there was a need. Can I jump back for just a second? Certainly. Um, for our listeners, can we get a sense for the level of use when you, you know, so you obviously you hit rock bottom. So what did that look like in, in terms of your use? I had managed to put together two weeks of sobriety um, without, I mean, I really wanted to recover. I did not like where my life had been, some of the things that I was engaged in on a regular basis. I'd gotten a job, um, had uh, gotten a paycheck, spent three days out binging on crack cocaine, my whole paycheck and alcohol and, you know, the, the lifestyle that goes along with it. And um, I had uh, asked my mother, God bless her, um, to put a, to hold some of my, my previous paycheck and um, I was going to get my life together. Well, I wasn't done partying when I came home, you know, three days later on a Sunday morning. And um, I asked for that money. And when she refused, I used um, a pistol that I had used to get my way out in the streets and threatened my mother. That was on May 14th, 1995. Um, if you look back, that was Mother's Day. And I felt horrible. Um after she begged and pleaded me to go to my room and sleep it off and everything, I finally did after I'd ransacked her apartment that she allowed me graciously to come back into at age 25 and being a father. And the next morning we woke up and we acted as if nothing had happened, something mm -hmm. that was normal in my family when we experienced things like that. Mm -hmm. So um, the week goes by, I go to work, I get another paycheck Friday morning off at 6 a.m., straight to the neighborhood bar, cash the check, I'm drinking and I'm out partying again. Did the exact same thing. But that Sunday morning when I showed up home wanting that same money that she had put up, I actually used a gun on her. I took that pistol and I had struck her across the side of her head and squeezed the trigger simultaneously, which I had done so many times to complete strangers out in the streets when it comes to what I had wanted. Heartbroken, um, 
unable to find the money after ransacking her apartment again. I'm looking for a hiding space. I sat on the corner of my bed and I put the gun in my mouth. I squeezed the trigger and at that time, an angel came in the room in the most least likeliest of forms, my sister whom we really had no relationship with. And she she put her hand on the gun right as the hammer was dropped and has a um, a slight um, disability behind that in one of her in her tendon but she said don't who don't that's my nickname we can get you help within three hours i was on that flight out to count uh, orange county california went through the uh, 21 day uh, made it to the recovery home or the sober house i'm speechless Okay. <clears throat> so, um, tell us about that. You're, you, so you arrived for your inpatient treatment. Mm -hmm. So let's talk through that. The inpatient treatment, for whatever reason, I don't know if it was where I was at, um, why the others weren't effective, um, but I believe my... By the time I had hit my third treatment, um, inpatient treatment stay, I knew enough. I sat up enough to understand the physiological aspects of addiction and how they, you know, um, applied to me. And um, it was repetitive and it was boring. And um, some of the things that I wanted to work on and why I think um, my last 21 day was so effective was because while I was there, I met with a therapist, not just a counselor. And we talked about some unresolved grief issues that I had. Some, the fact that, you know, I had been molested as a child by a neighbor, you know, that I had daddy issues for him not being around and mom issues because she suffered from a mental health disease. And um, by the time I, I left there and got to the recovery home, the gentleman that God had placed in my life, my mentor, the one I spoke of earlier, it just so happens that we shared the same goals. When I say he took me under his wing and asked me, he asked me one key question, what is it that you want? Now, initially, I told him everything that I thought people wanted to hear, what I had been programmed to. You know, I want to get a good job. I want to get my life together. I want a nice house. I want a nice car. All of those things. He looked me dead in my eye and said, no, what do you really want? And that's when I broke down and I said, you know what? I want my wife and kids back. I want to have a relationship with my mom and my dad and my sisters and my brothers. We were so closed off that that was the farthest thing. I had no idea how it was going to happen. And I envied families and, and other people that had that. So that's what we worked on. And it just so happens that that was his goal. We're talking about a gentleman that while his uh, oldest child was being born, he was down in the broom closet at the hospital slamming dope. So that was our connection. And I don't know exactly when it happened. I can tell you where. It was in Westminster, California, walking down 21st Street. Um, and God, for those that believe in it, spoke to me directly and said, this is what I want you doing for the rest of your life. Helping other people find stable housing and supportive services just like you have received. So that's been my lifelong mission since. Very powerful. Very powerful. Okay. Um, so after those two weeks, it was time to look on mm -hmm. and look at options for community housing, mm -hmm. and which would become your life work. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so for someone today in recovery, um, can you explain those options for our families that are listening out there um, that, that need to learn about this from the inside? What do those options look like and what are our pros and cons for each one of those? I think first, um, families need to realize that, you know, uh, recovery housing isn't new. It's been around since the 1800s. Um, I won't go too much into detail with that, but um, for the most part, it has to be centered around a peer, someone with that lived experience. You know, God bless everybody that has, you know, book knowledge and uh, uh, has read some stuff on the internet, but in order to reach the addict, in order to reach um, a person on the level that they are going to recover and stay and in recovery and reach long-term recovery, um, they have to be centered around people with that lived experience. Mm -hmm. When it comes to recovery housing, there are some key factors that you really need to look for, okay? Number one, is it peer-driven? Is it peer-oriented? Um, is it peer-operated? Is it peer-owned? Versus? Versus someone who springs up who has a property that thinks that, you know, this is going to be a lucrative opportunity for him or a financial money-making opportunity for him. We don't need any landlords. We don't need people to show up once a month, once a week, however, to uh, collect program fees or rents or whatever you want to call it. We need people that are going to engage us and um, provide uh, support outside of a physical structure. What else? And that can be a difficult task, even for those that have the, the best of intentions and they want to help because recovery housing is an industry. You know, there are standards that need to be met and codes that need to be followed and, 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 and rules and policies and procedures behind all of that. And some, um, in their best attempts, have come along and tried and failed miserably because they don't understand the population. They don't understand what recovery is versus sobriety. They don't understand that um, not every physical structure is going to be um, the best for that individual. And sadly enough, um, with a lot of the providers, they look at other providers as competitive versus complementing or meeting or helping to meet the need. Well, certainly that's that's kind of. Um, well, I suppose that's natural in business. In, in your business, it's kind of unique because you don't have enough capacity. No. We could open up um, or we could create 100 beds every day for the next year and still not meet the need. And that doesn't go to say that, you know, there's not enough people coming out of treatment or involved in, you know, aftercare or looking to bridge the gap into treatment or a place, safe place prior to going in. Because for me, my home was the, the recovery hostile environment, okay, for several different reasons. <laughs> so that's why I'm grateful. And I attribute some of my other treatment uh, the need for treatment by having to go back to the same environment. So you called it the recovery hostile hostile environment. environment. Recovery hostile environment. Yes. So can you go down a little deeper on that and describe what you mean by hostile environment? Well, carrying my own issues and perceptions about the world and, and goals and stuff like that. Let's um, talk about some of the stressors. If you know you've never had a relationship with mom or dad or grandma or aunt, uncle, whoever you're living with. Maybe it's, you know, your spouse, fiance, girlfriend, whatever the case may be. Um, 
outside of the obvious of that, you know what, they're actively using, but you want to stop. You know, that is huge, and it happens more often than not. Um, parents don't un- identify as having a challenge, or the person that you're living with don't I- does not identify with having a challenge with substance use. Um, then there could be, you know, um, just the stressors of, of being around um, people that you feel will not understand you, knowing that you're different, um, knowing that you have a problem, bringing that problem up and being, you know, uh, ostracized for that problem, you know, um, degraded, you know, looked upon as weak, um, the inability to say no, <laughs> having a lack of moral you know, uh, or morals, um, just a whole range of things which could describe a, host- a recovery hostile environment. Okay. So much of it having to do with the stigma of addiction. addiction yeah, excuse absolutely. Me. Yeah. Okay. So what makes FI different from other community housing organizations, would you say, Denny? Well, there are quite a few things, for lack of a better word, that we pride ourselves on. Number one, it is peer-oriented and peer-operated. Um, we provide, um, recovery coaches as uh, our staff, which is, um, you know, the CCAR model, the Ohio model, the peer supporter model. Um, there is a multitude of quote unquote electives that individuals can plug themselves into throughout the day. So let's say for instance, you know, I come through the door, a job is what I need as a man. Okay. Cause we serve primarily men in our residential program. Um, but I don't know how to get a job. So you can plug yourself up in the, the soft skills, the employment training. And then we have post employment training, you know, career advancement, things like that. Um, recovery coaching is mandatory all the way down the line. We still promote three self-help support groups on a weekly basis. Um, we have uh, financial planning and budget and money management, um, credit restoration, just this whole slew of things. We, uh, we do marriage counseling, you know, premarital counseling. Um, what kind of sets us apart is that one, we create a home atmosphere. We are all family here. Um, that's the culture that we, we really um, thrive on. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. The only difference between me and my position as CEO or executive director um, is my level of responsibility. But if you walk out or walk around our program at any time, you know, these guys will tell you that, you know what, Denny's door is always open. Um, that's how he set it up. And we help each other. So. So tell me a little bit about your clients. Mm-hmm. Um, what do they need to do to stay in good standing here, to stay here, okay. basically? We have um, what most would consider some common sense rules, but you'd be surprised. <laughs> so um, there are some standard rules that everybody has to follow um, for everybody's safety and comfort. Um, and that can include everything from not using, okay, um, to chores on time. And how do you pl- right. police the using or um, not using? Oh well, we know, okay. Um, when you are in uh, surrounded around individuals who know what the signs and symptoms of somebody that is using or about to use, we we speak on it, okay. You call them on the carpet. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if their demeanor changes, you know, if, if everything changes their attitude, we know that something's going on. We are that involved with each other. So you're relying on the triggers 
as n- not your knowledge and mm-hmm. your everyone's knowledge of the triggers, mm-hmm. as well as your relationship. Relationship and experience. Yeah. You know, we know it, when when we look at each other, we're looking at ourselves. The same symptoms and everything that are out there, you know, we've all experienced. You know, uh, for lack of better words, they say game recognizes game. So there's very little uh, blowing of smoke. <laughs> you can't get too much past us, and we thrive on that. But as a, a secondary caution, because, you know, there's some really good um, masks that we can put on and, and, and roles that we can play. We do um, random drug testing, weekly drug testing. Um, if you're, if it's, if you're um, suspected of using um, somebody's going to bring it on your car is going to call you on it. And, um, we, uh, we do in-house and we also work with a local lab too. Okay. What are the rules you've got chores people need to do? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is a communal effort. Um, this is their house. Um, when they come through the door, we want them to have the understanding that this is your house and your home for as long as you want it to be. Um, everybody has a start date. The end date is entirely up to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and we expect you to take care of it as if it is yours. So on average, how long do people stay? With FI, it's anywhere from 9 to 12 months. National average in recovery housing is up to two and a half years. So why so much shorter here than national average? We, because of our first funding stream that um, we were able to tap into back in 2007, we got into the habit of uh, working really hard to get people as self-sufficient and stable as quickly as possible. So when I say everybody has a start date, but they don't have an end date, we are running them through such an intense program and being there for them that they are receiving what they need within their first 90 days. So um, after their uh, first 90 days, you know, they're kind of, you know, going through the motion and, and, and stepping their, putting their toe in different areas of water and testing it and seeing if they can venture out. Well, nobody wants to stay in a recovery home forever. I've got individuals that have been with me seven, eight years um, still in the program today. Um, most of them have jobs Some with us. Some of them don't. Um, but for that individual that has some goals, okay, that wants to return to their family, that's what kind of brings our average down to about nine months. Hmm. Okay. Year. So let's see. On average, these people have been in an in, inpatient before they came to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, for how long would you say inpatient programs? 45, 60 these days, yes. Okay. And then they come to you, so they're here for, on average, uh, another nine months, mm-hmm. call it. Mm-hmm. And then they're still short of a year mm-hmm. of sobriety. Mm-hmm. Um, what what next? And what I'm getting at is, you know, they're they're just about ready to, I'll call it launch. But mm-hmm. I mean, you probably have better mm-hmm. words for it than that. <laughs> um, but they still need, uh, they still have to continue living their whole new life. Mm-hmm. So what support systems do you have for them there? The One of the founding principles um, in entering into a recovery lifestyle is that you develop a support system. Um, for those that leave FI Community Housing, you know, there's an alumni association. Um, everything that we offer throughout the day, whether or not they're actively engaged in that alumni association, they're more than welcome to come back to the facility at any time, any one of our facilities, um, in any condition. Um, so 
Um, but having that stable support system and developing that early on and getting into some um, healthy habits or routines is vital. And, and the majority of those that we work with, they maintain those habits once they walk out or stop residency at our door. Um, but it doesn't mean that, you know, the phone can't ring in the middle of the night should they, should they choose to pick it up. And that's the vital key importance. And one of the things that does set us apart um, as a provider is that relationships are number one. We, myself, I won't speak on anybody else, but been spit at, um, had punches thrown, um, death threats, um, not against not only me, but my family, um, physical harm against the building, the facilities, everything that's involved. But it's those exact same people because of what we instill will call back a week, month, years later, say thank you. Mm-hmm. You know, um, because of you, my life is different now. We don't pride ourselves on watching somebody go through the continuum to where they are 90, 120, two years clean and sober. We pride ourselves on planting the seeds that are needed for long-term recovery. So that's what we do, the basic tools that are needed for that. And um, we use a term around here called summer school instead of relapse, (laughs) which basically means if you're in our program and you're receiving all of these things that we know that you need and, you know, uh, we're loving on you the way that you want to be loved on and cared for and and supported. um, If you don't get it the first time, then, you know, there's summer school. That's how it was designed. You know, so that you don't miss it. And we get some that have to go through summer school two, three, four times. But eventually, um, God willing, they stay alive long enough that um, they get it. That's really putting a positive spin on relapse, Mm -hmm. which is really so needed Mm -hmm. out there Mm -hmm. because it's not failure. No. Can you comment on that? It's the farthest thing from failure. And, you know, one of the things that I have a challenge with um, are some support groups that um, make you start over, um, publicly, in my opinion, dehumanize you and all the efforts that you've made up until that point. Um, Because your recovery starts the moment that you decide that you are going to do something about it and take action in that. Whether or not you put together a significant amount of time or anything, you're not going to unlearn what you've learned um, during that recovery process to where you should be put down or looked bad upon or looked at or viewed as a failure because you are on your pathway. You are going somewhere. You did not forget everything that you learned up until that point. So to say that, you know what, my recovery, uh, has, I have to start all over. That's the farthest, that's the most non it's nonsense. <laughs> yeah, it's preached out there for whatever reason. Yes. Doesn't that make you mad? It it frustrates me to the point to where I I, I speak on it as often as possible, to as many as possible. And um, I encourage our clients and our participants, you know, if you if you have a speed bump, okay, which we refer to them as, <laughs> um, if something happens, um, it's not a setback. You know, it's not a start over point. Um, it's an opportunity for you to learn from, you know, what you were doing and maybe tighten up on what needs to be done and maybe even do some more exploration as far as, Hey, well, maybe I really need to take a look at this, um, grief recovery program you got going on because, you know, from my best recollection, seeing somebody that reminded me of my friend that passed away, you know, kind of set me off, you know, and that's, that's pretty common. 
So, um, Denny, you've been in sobriety how many years now, if I might ask? 21. 21. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. So, um, one of the challenges is that someone in recovery faces is having to build up this entire support system. Mm -hmm. And when you go uh, remote, mm -hmm. it adds an additional burden to that challenge mm -hmm. because you establish your support system mm -hmm. and then you have a choice. You either stay remote and build the rest of your life around that, mm -hmm. geographically remote, mm -hmm. or you, in essence, do a little bit of rebuilding when you come back, and I'm stretching on this because the real question is, how did you do that? How did you make that transition geographically and make your support, make it all work for you and build a beautiful support system? Remember when I, I talked to you about the gentleman out in California and, uh, and about relationships and the importance of it? At the end of the day, that relationship is still going to be number one. So it doesn't matter where I go, okay? If I have done my part in a relationship and have any understanding of how relationships work, okay, um, I could be at the lowest point, full of pride, full of ego and everything like that, and still pick up the phone and say, hey, you know what, I'm feeling some type of way, you know, or this is what I'm thinking about. I don't want to act on it. You already know that. And it's not going to be, oh, my God, you know, um, sometimes we just sit in a hole with people, you know, while they're there. And help them bring themselves out of it but that all starts with that relationship does it work all the time does everybody utilize that no but um statistically from from our standpoint nine times out of ten even if a guy is uh or a person is to the point to where they've already picked up um they're gonna call but we are we are so grateful that because of our relationships, if we don't hear from somebody, then that's a sure sign that they may be walking towards a cliff, getting ready to jump off. So we'll reach out. We do wellness calls. We do wellness checkups. We'll check in with uh, people if we haven't heard from them in a while. Um, but again, it's, it's all about that willingness to know that I cannot do this on my own. I need the support of my peers um, and that we can all learn from each other. You know, I don't proclaim to have all the answers from the chair that I sit in. I really don't. I learn something brand new every day from everybody that I work with. And uh, I welcome that. But that's the type of environment that you would want your loved ones to be in, that you would want to come to if um, you were struggling in any area. And um, over time, we can help with that understanding. You know, they helped with the program that I was in, the gentleman I was with. Yeah, he talked to my wife. Before I could talk to her, he talked to my kids, my mom, you know, my dad, before I could talk to them because I just didn't know. Wow. Um, that's beautiful. That's so powerful. Yeah. And, and, and that's one of the services that needed needs to be offered in recovery housing. We are fortunate enough to, to do that. So he brokered your mm -hmm. re-entry into a relationship with your family. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because, and, and here's the key, and I don't want anybody to miss over that. It wasn't because he had a program in place or this machine where he could run Denny through and hope for the best at the end. No, he took a vested interest in me as an individual and wanted to know what I wanted. Okay, You don't get that in treatment. You don't get that in a lot of the providers out there. It's this cookie cutter program that they run everybody through and they hope for the best at the end. 
No, that's not what this world needs. And that's not what anybody needs in recovery housing. Um, they need somebody to take a vested interest, individualize their program of recovery based upon what they want and need, guide them in case they decide to pull something out of the air that's just not going to fit based upon our experience and that relationship that's been built. So, um, so can you give me what you would think would be some of the most important points that family members should know in your estimation in supporting their loved one in recovery from your experiences, Denny? Be completely non-judgmental. Um, be open to learning. Um, express your frustrations, your sadness, your anger, um, positively as possible. Um, do not cut off. Educate yourselves. Find out what... Do not cut off your loved one. Do not cut off your loved one, right. yes. Yeah. Um, do not shut them out. There, um, There's so much going on, you know, to the addicted person um, that it's sometimes hard for their loved ones to see anything other than what they're doing, their actions. And then we get into questioning ourselves. Why are they doing this if they know the risk? How could this happen to our family? Where did I go wrong? Okay. And that is the, let's take that off the table right now. Um, it has nothing to do with you in a sense. Okay. But for the most part, their recovery is heavily based upon having those whom they know care about them the most in their corner. We talk about tough love and there are points where, yes, you're going to have to do what's necessary for your, you know, um, health and well-being. But prior to that, that decision should be made by somebody uh, or yourself after you have educated yourself. You know, don't wait to plug yourself into a self-help group after the fact and let the person know that you care about that's in your family that's struggling with the addiction know that, hey, I'm going to do some things for me too. We can recover together because that's what it's all about. Even if you don't understand all the components and aspects of addiction, there are things that you can learn along the way. Work with providers, work with the treatment agencies, work with counselors, talk to individuals, talk to peer supporters, talk to recovery coaches, talk amongst, your, amongst yourselves. By all means, I'm not saying that you... Um, you contribute to any of the behaviors associated with addiction, okay? Um, but at the same time, have an understanding, you know, to the best of your ability. My mom, God bless her, she died not only an addict, but um, with a mental health diagnosis. And at 18, I moved out of her house for the first time. And it, she was in the middle of a manic episode when that happened. Well, lo and behold, a year uh, or two years after that, even in the middle of my addiction, I started working for the area's largest behavioral health provider because I had an understanding and we were able to make amends on so many different levels prior to me moving out. And this was pre going to California. So mm -hmm. there were some issues um, mm -hmm. and, and I just didn't understand. But the moment that I got some understanding and I took the responsibility of learning myself and not waiting to hear, um, there was some clarity. There, the love was restored, you know, to the to the point to where the relationship 
was important again. Denny, I want to thank you today. Um, I uh, just have uh, really one last question for you. And what else would you like to share with our listeners about the uh, the challenges that your clients in recovery face? Our participants are spoiled. <laughs> But I think one of the biggest challenges that um, they face um, and that we face also is engulfing them in that recovery culture because it's new, it's brand new, and it is a culture. And there's so many components and, and, uh, to that culture that it takes some time. You know, one of the things I like to tell everybody that comes through the door, and, I, and I'm usually their second point of contact um, after, you know, um, interview, is, hey, you know what, you did not get to where you are, you know, by walking 15 miles in the woods in one direction, turning around, walking back one mile, and being out of there. So give yourself some time, okay? Um, we're going to, for lack of better words, unpeel that onion one layer at a time, Um Figure out what needs to happen based upon what you want to have happen. And um, we're going to get you where you want to be. But the biggest thing is slow down. Hmm. You know, don't be in a rush. Um, providers and advocates like myself all across the state have worked really hard to get to the point to where um, there's funding. The support stays at infinitum, you know. So, um I would think that that would be the biggest challenge we face right now, giving people or helping people give themselves enough break that they understand that this is a process. Um, what tomorrow looks like, we're really not going to con be concerned with. Can you see yourself 20 years from now, you know, clean, sober, and all those things that you dream about? No, that's what we're going to work towards. So, And um, for the family members of those that we work with, um, Understand the importance of if you can't create a recovery, um, addictive uh, um, space for your loved one, then be okay with them being where they're at and support that place. Okay, because we we put in a lot of work. It's twenty four hours, seven days a week, uh, three sixty five a year, and um, it's good to know that when. Our participants are able to call a loved one, that that loved one will call in and say, hey, you know what, I just had a great conversation, you know, with my son, my daughter, you know. Um, it keeps us going. Yeah, well, I can see why. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, Denny, I want to thank you. Really appreciate uh, your having us in today and visiting with you. We've been visiting with Denny Wilson, founder and CEO of FI Community Housing Christian Recovery Support Services in Akron, Ohio. Thanks again, Denny. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time. <laughs>